This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league, starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We have to go into the fact that I did a Zoom for my daughter's school and the pronouns conversation with each teacher, each parent, each child. And my daughter says in school too that everybody has to say their pronouns. So, and my daughter didn't even know what hers were. And I can't even blame you. I know what I am or what I think I am, but like I never have said it out loud. I don't, it hasn't come up for me. And so she didn't know. She said someone exactly how to say it. Someone said it before her because someone's parents definitely told them. So there are these crazy stories about these camps this summer. Summer camp went fucking crazy this summer. So either it was the pandemic or everybody being being politically correct. It was the pandemic or politically correctness, or it just happened to be the craziest year in camp history. So my daughter doesn't go to camp. In the Hamptons, um, I get canceled for this too. It's a primarily Jewish sport. This send your kid away for the whole summer to camp. It's a prime. It's it's people. Other people go to camps, but like people looking at you like something's fucking wrong with you. That your kids are. Where is she going this summer? And I'm like, I can't, mommy. What? I can't wait to fucking ship my kids off for the whole summer. What? I'm like, yes, you can't, mommy. We go wakeboarding. We go surfing. This is a very, very revolutionary, drastic. Annie's laughing because Annie works for you, Jewish Annie. And right, you go to camp, Annie? I did. Yeah, 18 years. 18 years she went to camp. Did you, has there, do you ever met a Jew that is of some means that hasn't got, that doesn't have their kids going to camp? No. Never. No, it's just like it's a Jewish. Like, oh. It's weird. People think, yeah, right. So the fact that my mother, they'll think it's genetic. My mother 
came from a Catholic family and converted and I'm not religious, but people, you know, if you're Jewish, it's just, it's a rite of passage. Okay. So all the Jews in the Hamptons are on this like list, uh, then email list. It's either like a thread or they all are on some chain and people are on there who their kids don't even go to these camps, but like every Jew emails each other and knows about what's going on at all the camps. And there are different ones. Like there's one called Racket Lake and one that was called like Tyler Hill. Are they still all around? Which one did you go? Winocky. Trails End. These are like brand, these are brand names. I just said like Louis Vuitton, Prada, Gucci. These are like brand name. One was like tennis something. So this summer, these, these, these emails were flying. Okay. One of the emails said that, and some of it's just gossip, like, cause there's a lot of liability. So the parents are putting it on their own emails. It's not like a blast from camp central. This is like parents emailing each other. So the first story, and these are all true stories. It's, they've all been vetted. They're all, all the, all the camps are freaking out. The first story, one, one issue that occurred was it's an all girls camp and a person with a penis who identifies as being a girl went to the camp and was in the bunk with the girls. And the girls saw her because it's her because it's a it's a it's a male anatomy, but an identifying as a woman. So the so the girl other girls saw a penis and they're like, you know, nine, ten years old. So the parents obviously, or not obviously, but then why could you see a vagina? I don't know. Okay, so the parents obviously weren't that um, happy. And then, and I don't know why this is different because I don't, we hadn't heard about it that much, but this girl with with a penis was making out with a lot of the different girls at the camp. So that was the first story that happened, like things you don't necessarily think of. Okay, a separate story just about crazy camp stuff was there was somebody that having nothing to do with sexuality was it was it was it was a tickler like tickling all the different kids and that person got sent home and then there was one where there was like a hole in the bunk and they were there was a peeker and then this is my personal favorite so they send home emails when you're at camp and they say um you know, we did a camp, a bonfire, the, you know, color war, everything's going great. This happened. We all had this experience. This happened. The other thing happened, et cetera. And yeah, and by the, and also, um, three of the kids went out to go get wood for the bonfire and they came upon a dead body. So in one of the camps, there was like an engineer or somebody that took their own life. Very, very sad, obviously. And three of the kids went in like stand by me fashion and found a body. So camp was lit this summer, but it's an interesting conversation about a girl, a female anatomy being in a male anatomy bunk or vice versa. Okay. So that's a conversation. And they're talking a lot about sports now and how, is it fair if you're on a team and somebody with a male anatomy who identifies as being a woman is playing. And is that fair? And how can you balance that? And a lot of people don't, you know, because there are, I think there's um, like studies that the least uh, proficient male is still often stronger or faster or what have you, male anatomy than the most proficient female. I said what they can maybe um, level the playing field, like find somebody to be in that same situation to play on the other side or some way to do it. Or, you know, there's way, there are ways to grade on a curve or things like that. So what, what about that conversation? And then, you know, I was thinking the other day about, this is to be honest, I have, um, I have a male driver 
And I was thinking, and my girl, my assistants will sometimes, if I have to go run and do something, they'll stay with Bryn for a minute or they'll meet her downstairs when she does a transfer back from her dad. Um, I don't have, I don't have a nanny. I've never had a nanny. So, you know, and I don't never, I'm scary. I've never had a babysitter either. So people around me will help me. And, um, my driver will drive Bryn, uh, to school sometimes or back to her dad's, uh, without me in the car. So I was thinking the other day about, and this has been in the past too, with Albie was a driver. We had the Bryn loved. She loves Alt and my driver. So I was thinking about if I was going out one night and if he could stay with her, if I had to just run and go do something. And I thought, well, my ex might say something, would say something like, oh, she shouldn't be because he said in the past, wouldn't, shouldn't be alone with, you know, quote unquote, a, a strange man or, you know, but then why can she be alone with a woman? Like that's something no one really talks about. And that happens also in offices where men, my Dennis, my um, ex-fiance has a rule that he wouldn't be in an office alone with a woman if the door weren't open because of Me Too and all that stuff. And people say that about elevators. But now it's going to have to change just to be a person. Why Why is it just a woman? Because that's sexist to say that a, God, a man could be with my daughter but not a woman, right? So that's one interesting thing that's crazy. And then, you know, everybody's giving their pronouns. And I, the next thing you know, that's going to be, you're going to be like, I don't, I don't pronoun. I don't, I'm, I, I, I don't want to tell you that. That's, I, it's private information. Like, Everything is so rule-based and people don't know exactly how to follow the rules that, you know, anything could, you could say anything too, though. You could say, and this is a controversial conversation. I'm fully okay with it. But you could say, I don't want to say my sexuality. That's not relevant to anything. Why does that have to be something that we tell everybody? Um, also, you know, with the bathrooms at schools changing and all that, which is great. But the truth, the thing, the, the interesting thing about this is, the age when, so my daughter's age, what happens if there's a child who isn't ready to make that decision? So don't a lot of girls in college, or not even in college, high school, college, don't a lot of girls in college have a lesbian phase, but then they realize that they're not. Maybe they're going through something. Maybe they want attention. Maybe they go through a, 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 bad, a bad breakup. And how, what is the age that someone's absolutely positive who they are? There's got to be gray area, meaning there are some children that know exactly who they are. They identify as a boy. They identify as a girl. They may have male anatomy. They, they, their parents know for sure. But then aren't there some kids that in high school and college make that decision? And I've heard, literally heard of situations where then they sort of unmake that decision. So if you're a person who's for a period of time identifying with being a girl and you're a boy, and then, you know, you decide to switch that back. I mean, you're not, going through any sort of surgery in that case, what I'm talking about, but I just mean you're more comfortable like that. And then you decide to switch back. Like, what does that mean for that camp? What does that mean for that bunk that there's a person with a penis and maybe a mother isn't ready for her child to see a penis in the bunk and understand that the person identifies with being um, a girl. Because my daughter understands all of this. I mean, she's, she, you know, she, it's amazing. They have different language, different understandings, but she also hasn't seen a penis. You know, and so in a camp, she's would have would see girl parts. So I just think these conversations are also fluid. So I want to hear what you guys all think. What do you think you you all on the on this uh, on this podcast? Meaning my team, my producers. Did I explain all that right? Was it confusing or like did I explain my feelings right? Did I seem like I have any specific uh, 
point of view on it. Cause I, I, it's just a conversation. I don't actually necessarily, I just, we were talking about it at dinner last night. Yeah, it definitely seems like you are more opening the conversation than coming in with a, a strong point of view on what you think the, the answers are necessarily. Yeah. What do you think? What do you think about it? Um, you know, I, I'm very active in trans inclusion in sports and things like that. I think especially at young ages, you know, inclusion is all that really matters as far as helping young people be fully fulfilled. Um, versus winning. Yeah, definitely. Right. You know, building, building a child's morale is going to be the most important thing over the team winning because I feel like there's an advantage. There's also a very, uh, like a lot of those studies, like there's not a ton of studies to prove that, especially at young ages, kids have that much of an advantage based on anatomy at that point. Okay. So what about when they, what about older? What about high school when people are, what about when they're drafting kids for like, you know, like Friday night lights stuff for football and it, mat- it matters what colleges think and the winning and losing do do matter. So what do you think about my idea of either grading on a car- curve, which is crazy for like professional sports or stack the deck so that there's a situation where both teams, but you can't control that, I guess, because you can't control what other schools do. It's, I think it's a complicated issue. You have to admit that no? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think a, a large part of the conversation too is like, what is an advantage? You know, like people bring up Michael Phelps a lot. Um, is height in basketball an advantage? So it's like, okay, sorry, you're too tall to play. So oh, play. okay. I like that. So it's kind of like, what, what's even an advantage? So that's kind of the conversation that I've seen around it a lot. Interesting. What is an advantage? Well, but there are differences between men and women, even they say in left and right brain. I mean, there are physical differences. We can't say that every single thing is going to be exactly the same. Do you know what I mean? Totally. So then it's like that kind of opens up and what is competition? Like, what's the goal of competition? If there's always going to be some advantage somewhere, then. I understand. That's a very interesting thing. What if you're smarter and you're just smarter? So you have better tactical decision making on a field. I get why it's such a. What do you think about the, 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 the bunk, a male anatomy person in that bunk? Yeah. It's interesting. Cause like you said, some of the parents are freaking out, but it sounds like your daughter like kind of knew the words and kind of was like familiar already. So I wonder how much do you feel like it's parents overreacting on their kids behalf, but they're kind of ready for those conversations or do you feel like not, they're not ready? I mean, no, because, a, because, because a penis often goes into a vagina, I think. So they might not want that sort of, you know, visual. So that soon, you know what I mean? Like that idea I think, I mean, this, it's soup. it's, it's, it's changing a whole construct of how people think. So if somebody identifies as being a girl and is in a bunk and has a penis, I think I understand why it's going to be jarring, but I also understand how much turmoil for that poor child who is going to have to feel that. Like they don't know where they belong. That is horrible. Like that feeling. You know what I mean? So that's the point. Everyone, they have to have a place to go to, go to the bathroom and feel safe and comfortable. That just has to be a discussion. And what if there are no other uh, kids in that situation? I guess if I, I were the parent, I would want my child to go to another camp where there were kids in the same situation, or I would do camp mommy like I do. Like I would not every, you know what I mean? Not every situation is set up to make somebody thrive. I mean, I know people who won't send their children to really very athletic schools because they're a little more quote unquote alt or quote unquote, you know, nerdy, like whatever that word means, you know what I'm saying? But like, just not 
not jocks. So they're not going to send them to these schools that are pr- primarily jocks because they're not going to, they're going to set them up for not feeling safe and, and successful. So I think parents have to do the job of making your kid feel safe. You can't just put, you can't just be, you can't make every situation fit. I think that, I think that's what I think. I think I would, I'm always going to try to set up my daughter for where she's going to thrive. And I don't think, I like that the camp, but I, the camp didn't think it through, I guess, if that ever happened. I don't know. Maybe they didn't think someone would see their anatomy. And then that would be the thing. I guess that's the rule. No one shows their anatomy, females or or males. That one was a counselor. The counselor was identified as being a girl. Oh, I did hear that. I'm mixing the two stories. Okay, so that was a- it's still a good point of a camper too, because it could happen. Yeah, that could happen for a camper, but that's true. It was a counselor, but it, it was, this, this, there was also, I'm not- the counselor, the kid was a male anatomy child making out with a female anatomy child. That was the thing the parents were writing about. But then separately, there was a counselor that was in the girl's um, bunk and 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 they saw the counselor's anatomy. So now that's an older counselor. So then that's like sort of that's that's a problem like that's that's not OK. So it's very interesting. It's a very interesting conversation. And I feel like that would be where no one can, no one's allowed to show their anatomy. It doesn't matter what you identify as or who you identify as. Candace Bushnell is my guest today. She is an international best-selling author with three TV shows based on her work, including, of course, Sex and the City. She's been writing professionally since she was just 19 and talks to me about the passion it takes to make it as a writer. We discuss New York and how it's shaped our lives and her work and what drove her to write and star in her new one-person show, Is There Still Sex in the City? She's so fascinating, so honest, so New York, and so real. I know you're going to love this one. So you grew up in Connecticut, correct? Yes. Okay. I did, but you know, I came to New York when I was actually 18. I, I pretty much, I did what a lot of people do. I ran away from college. Did you um, come from humble means, middle class? What was the financial situation in your home? It was a middle class family, you know, in Connecticut, the suburbs. I, you know, I think that people felt that, you know, in those days, Middle class, a lot of middle class people felt like they were upper middle class. You know, there was a lot less income disparity back then. And it, it kind of felt like everybody was the same. I mean, we didn't have, you know, there weren't people who were like living in mansions. There were people who had family money. Um, but because I didn't grow up in Greenwich, or a place like that where people were working in New York City. It, it kind of felt like everybody was pretty much the same. You know, everybody wore Izod, Lacoste shirts. It was a very waspy, old New England town um, where people really valued being Yankees. You know, everybody was modest. You don't talk about money. It was considered very déclassé to talk about money. So it doesn't sound like you wanted for anything. But there were definitely dreams of aspiration, meaning there was definitely some place to go, to soar. So what was, your parents were together? Yes, until my mother died. Oh, wow. Okay. So did they instill in you a work ethic? What was the relationship to success and work 
and striving in your house? I think the one thing that my parents never, I had two younger sisters and they never, you know, they never talked about getting married and having kids. That was something that, that, you know, wasn't talked about, wasn't encouraged. We didn't know how to, I have two younger sisters, no brothers. I don't even think I really talked to a guy until I went to college. So I had very little experience with men. My father was a genius. He invented the fuel cell they used in the first Apollo space rocket. So being smart was really, really important. Somehow, you know, there was a lot of pressure to do something, but no instructions on how to do it, no help on how to do it. It was really about, you know, in those days, I remember my father saying, you know, when you turn 18, you're going to be cut off. So if you want to figure out a good way for your, for your kids to run away from college, tell them they're getting cut off at 18. So they were very much instilling a work ethic and don't rely on a man, which is so interesting to me because of your trajectory. That's why I ask these questions, because often people who are now successful raising our kids is more challenging than when we didn't have anything. Um, so you're saying that that was really instilled and that's come through in your work completely. Like it does not seem like you ever really even thought about a man rescuing you, saving you, being your Prince Charming. You, you, it seems like you wanted to do it on your own. I did. It's a lot harder to do it on your own. You've done very well, but very few women have made the kind of money you've made. Very few. Is it harder? I think it would have been harder to, to meet someone and wait for them to give me what I wanted and, and have to ask permission and have someone else control the purse strings. That's something I've never even understood how you do that. Same. That's the problem. I mean, that's the problem. I, yeah. It's like, I mean, you know, you live, you've lived in New York, you know, there's a whole, you know, there's a huge group of women who come to New York who are looking for the rich husband. And I mean, if you're looking for a rich husband, New York's one of the places you come. And they know how to manage that, negotiate that. They're pros. But I do see, you know, I mean, I see women who have been married to very rich men end up with, you know, $5 million, $20 million. I understand what you're saying. But I think if you marry for money, you pay for the rest of your life in some way. So that's just a concept. I totally agree. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. Love this. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part time or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure... It kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are married for how many years? No, I'm divorced. I I was married for 10 years. Okay, so I I consider that to be a successful relationship. I do too. I mean, I think, you know, there's all different kinds of successful relationships. And I mean, you know, as time goes on, I, I think... You know, some relationships are just not meant to last forever. And I think that, you know, as people live longer, there are going to be sections of time when, you know, you're with someone, you may be with somebody who you raise a child with, and then 
you don't stay together and then maybe you're with somebody else. So I think we're going to have different stages in our lives. As women, there will be times when you're going to be single. That's a construct. So it's interesting. You just are talking about something that doesn't have to be bad. It could still have been a successful relationship. It just was going to devolve based on who you both were becoming or became is what I think you're saying. Right. And And it also depends on, you know, where people are in their lives. My husband was 10 years younger. And, you know, I mean, when my mother died, these kinds of things can really change relationships too. You know, if there's an emotional blow and, you know, one person can kind of lose their footing and sometimes the other person is just not emotionally and psychically able to help them through that. And it takes a lot. It takes a lot. It takes a lot. You know, I think, you know, I think that being married takes a lot of emotional maturity, probably more than most people have, you know, then on top of that, having a child, you know, you need two grownups in a relationship, I think, to have a, raise a child. And often you've got one. Mm-hmm. usually the woman it's so interesting what you're saying it's true both people have to be really up to the task not everybody based on what we all come into this life with our own baggage our own family our own history not everybody's always up to the task not everybody wants to workshop everything you have to work it and not everyone always wants to work sometimes people just you know give up and let go of the rope I think that's interesting and it doesn't mean it's a failure I mean that's I think that's very interesting so what is your writing process and how has it changed well first of all I started writing professionally when I was 19 I'm completely mystified by you know people who say like oh I want to write a book and I've never written a book before Uh, you know I mean to me writing is a very different thing to me writing is like being an actress it's like being a violinist it's it's who you are. It's something that you're born doing. It's something that it comes deep within. And when I was younger, I really felt like I am going to die if I am not a writer. Less than that, people with less passion than that is like, I don't really get it. Why would you want to write a book? Just for money, I guess. Writing is not a money-making thing. That's what I don't understand. It's really, it's a passion and it's something that you feel like if you don't do it, you're going to die. And that was pretty much how I felt all through, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I knew I was going to be a writer when I was eight. Wow. And that's really what carried me through, you know, my 20s, not making any money, really struggling, writing for women's magazines. I, I mean, now that I'm doing this show, I, I just, I think, you know, there's just so many easier ways to make money, like probably being an actor. Right. You know, I mean, writing a book is lonely. It's tedious. It's extremely time consuming. You know, for me, when I'm writing a book, I'm writing, I might write 10 pages a day. I am not seeing anybody for about 10 days. Wow. And I have a really, really disciplined schedule. So it's, you know, it's not a side job for me. You have to not only be a person who wants to be a writer and knows how to express themselves and feel, but who also is grammatically able because nobody I know can write an email. 
Nobody can spell and nobody can communicate. I, I mean, I, I correct everybody's everything. So that's the only reason probably that I can write books because if I have a thought, I can communicate it in a very streamlined way. But it's not in your God-given talent way, in my opinion. So I I'm, I'm find that very interesting, what you're talking about. You're a natural born you writer. Know what? I don't, I don't, I mean, I write because I find human beings fascinating and awful. And I, it's like, I'm kind of like a medium. I have been ever since I was a kid, I can really get into people's heads and like feel what they're feeling. And, you know, I don't write a book because I'm trying to get a message across. You write, because this is fiction too. It's not like a prescriptive, it's fiction, it's fantasy. I'm creating characters and then I'm following the characters, the characters take over, you know, it's, 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 it's a work of imagination and it's really about being in your head and literally being in a different world, like being in this world, but really being in the world in your head and capturing that. It's a very different thing. And do you read a lot? I used to. I mean, that, you know, that's the other aspect of this is that I used to read a ton. Now I feel like I'm just addicted to my goddamn phone. If you're not reading, you're probably writing, right? I mean, right now I'm not writing because I'm working on the one woman show. Is there still sex in the city? Um, normally I'm writing six days a week and probably for five or six hours a day. Um, that is a discipline. It's discipline. That is a discipline. That's amazing. It doesn't give you time for a lot of other things. And, you know, I, I mean, I gave up going out a lot too. Sounds satisfying though. And the pandemic was probably the craziest time of your whole life. Like you probably, probably poured out of you. Everybody's life during the pandemic was pretty much my life all the time. You know, not going out, not seeing a lot of people, uh, working at home, not putting on the TV, but it was such an unsettled time that I wasn't exactly sure what to write about. Your success when it popped off, like what, tell me about that story. You were doing what you couldn't pay your rent. Like, what was that arc like? I, I think what it's really about is you finding your voice and finding your style, what you write about, your point of view, how you look at the world, and then being able to take what's in your head and get that onto the page. That's really the hardest part. It's like, you know, it's like playing an instrument. It's like playing the violin. At, you know, at first you practice everybody else's music and, you know, you learn how to actually do it, put words together. So for all of my 20s, I was really writing the precursors in a sense of what would become Sex in the City. Okay. I was writing about women in New York, women, my friends, me, uh, our relationships, society, what's it like as a you know woman with the pressures to have a career, find a relationship. And, you know, I just kept doing it. And eventually it's like the outside world 
kind of intersected with my ambitions. You know, I got an opportunity to have a column in the New York Observer, and I knew exactly what to do because I'd been doing it for so long. And so then you get yourself in the right place at the right time and you become successful. Maybe if I'd written, you know, if I had different breaks uh, when I was in my 20s, if I come from a wealthy family that supported me where I could just have written books. I mean, when I was 19, I wrote a children's book um, and I thought I am just going to write novels. And but you can't do that unless you have family money, unless you have the right connections, unless you went to an Ivy League school. Uh, you know, all of that stuff takes connections. And I didn't have any connections. Did you get really into it? Were you like, oh, my God, this is it. I'm I'm somebody. I mean, it just doesn't sound like you were like that. But were you like that? You know, it might be that I've always felt like I am somebody. Um, I, I think, you know, New York is definitely a place where people come to make it. And I definitely came here to make it. And hopefully to be who I was supposed to be and who I'm, who I am supposed to be. But in terms of, you know, look, New York is a place, it's all about status and it's all about pecking order. We see that with the Met Ball. Who's going? Who is it? I went once when I was with the real Mr. Big. Um, and, you know, New York is, that's what it's about. Do you care? Do you care that you didn't go to the Met Ball? Not really. Do you? No. Like, yes, in a sense that I would love to see if I could do it and nail it and land it. But that's just who I am as a person, as just for myself. Nothing to do with, I don't care what people think of me. I don't care about the press or any of that stuff. That's just not me. And, you know, and New York is a place where, you know, there's certain, you know, people that you can hang out with and be a part of if you want to adopt the same kind of attitudes that they have. And it's like, you know, I mean, I've been in situations where people are like, oh, if you suck up to this person, you know, they can do you a lot of favors. It's like, I'm not sucking up to anybody. That's truly, what you just said is really the real New York. What you were talking about is the bullshit New York. And most of those people, the emperor has no clothes. When you meet them, they're morons, they're crazy, they're whack jobs, they're just all image, they're frosting, there's no cake. Like, And that's one of the realities about New York. I mean, they're just I mean, there's so many decisions and people do so many things that are just horrible and it's just business. And so you really have to have a tough skin here. And, you know, there's certain people who it's like, okay, they're famous or whatever, but do you really want to hang out with them? It's nice to have arrived so you don't have to go anywhere anymore. But now maybe because it's after the pandemic or whatever, but now I'm like, I want to go out. I That's so funny. Me too. That's why last night, look, because you want to get dressed up and do something. And I'm not like that at all. That's exactly it. And, you know, I mean, that's really one of the reasons why I'm doing this show at the Daryl Roth Theater is it's like coming to my living room. It's like gathering a whole bunch of girlfriends. Mm -hmm. Come with your girlfriends. We're going to have a good time. And I, I feel like that's, that's what I'm really looking for. I love that. Okay. Well, I love that. 
Um, what do you think about your city? What do you think about New York? Do you still have this love affair with New York? Do you love it the same way you always did? I mean, as one gets older and one matures, certain things fall away. Um, you know, I, when I was younger, everything is so magnified. Every little detail is so important. When you get older, you can't even see that well. You know, I can't even tell the difference between a fake Chanel bag and a real one, you know, whatever. <laughs> so I don't care. But when you're young, it's like, you're, you know, having the right handbag is so important. And, and you know, going to the right parties and getting in. And, and you know, also I was in New York when, in the late 70s, went to Studio 54, the 80s, the 90s, New York was all about going out. I know. And that was part of business too. That was business too, succeeding at that. And it was the theater of New York. It was the, you know, you go to a restaurant, you see four people you know, and you, you know, you're, you're, you network and, and it, you know, it was that excitement of things are happening all the time. And but that's how it is when you're young. Now, is that right. happening in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, with you know twenty somethings who are going out to clubs? It probably is. Mm-hmm. Is it going to happen being a sixty year old woman? Eh, I don't know what it is. When you have no hormones, you look at the world differently. Right. <laughs> that's very it's funny. much better, actually. That's very very funny. Um, but so I think it's more about. A mastery, but you know, I do still love New York. It doesn't feel like it's as exciting as it used to be, but that could just be because of my age. I don't think so. I know. I I, I think about that too. I think she's taking a hit. I mean, I, to, like to me, I mean, one of the problems with New York is, let's face it, it's the income disparity. Because, and the other thing is, for instance, like in the you know, in the building that I live in, the building I live in, Dorothy Parker used to live here. It used to be all one bedrooms and it used to be, you know, a lot of single women. Now people have taken all of these apartments and then combined them because they have kids. And so there are astronomical maintenances. The prices of the apartments are you know, five times what they should be. And who can afford that? The only person who can afford that is another hedge funder with a family. So, you know, just that in itself, it, you know, it changes the dynamics of the city because where are, you know, the city used to be filled with single people. Yeah, but online dating has changed that a lot too. I've heard men say that they won't walk up to a woman in a restaurant or a bar and just cold because if she's with a girlfriend, because they will think if she wanted to be out with a guy, she would be on an online date. Every girl, every night, your show would be a totally different show. Every night you could go get a different online date. The one where you just fuck someone, the one where someone's Jewish, the one you want to marry someone, the one you want to go on three dates, tell a story, tell a joke. You have something in common, some weird fetish. I mean, you choose your adventure. So that's why people don't have to go out. And it's not that interaction in that social jungle it used to be. Yes, except that everybody I talk to who goes online all the time hates it. I met my fiance online and like he's Prince Charming. Literally, he's like the real life Prince Charming. And you have to treat it like you have to do it like a business too. You can't just be like flippant about it. So you know 
what's important to you, you know what's not important to you, and you know what's a deal breaker, what's non-negotiable. And it's amazing. And I can't believe I'm saying that because I was the last one to do it, the last, except for you. I was like, there's no way, it's not for me. And I, I got into it and like I literally met Prince Charming. I know so many people who have met somebody online dating and, you know, they do the same thing. They really treat it like a job. But the only thing that I've noticed, but you know what, it's like online dating is like offline dating. You know, if you have, if you're good at certain things, you know, being able to make a conversation, uh, having self-confidence, you're going to do well dating online or offline. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. Love this. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. 
It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you vain? I don't think so. No, you don't care about age and plastic surgery per se, or you don't think about it a lot? Like, well, I feel like I should get plastic surgery. I do not think based on looking at you, I didn't know you've had it or haven't had it. You definitely should not get plastic surgery. I haven't had any, but I feel like I want to, but I also feel like I don't really have the guts. I feel the exact same way. I mean, the thing about plastic surgery is it doesn't really make you look younger. As somebody said to me, It makes you look, you know, really good for your age, like somebody who's had plastic surgery. I am not against it at all. And I also think, I think that people do, if plastic surgery is available, people will do it. And I I think that it's part of human nature, self-improvement, which I admire. No problem either, but I don't want to look like a crazy person. You know what I mean? No problem. Same. I'd get it tomorrow at Jiffy Plastic Surgery. Go to Brazil, go through the drive-thru, but I just know I'll end up looking crazy. I don't look good in makeup, contouring, none of that. I'm not vain at all, so that's not for me. But you look amazing, and I would never have said it if I didn't think it. Thank you. So I wouldn't get it if I were you. Of your career, the high and the low. God, I, I, you know, I think one of the highs was getting onto the New York Times bestseller list. Mm-hmm, wow. Because that was... You know, that was definitely a high. And, but of course, you know, then there's always the pressure. I mean, I think Lipstick Jungle, the TV show Lipstick Jungle, getting that on the air was really a high. And Brooke Shields was in that. And, you know, we loved that show. Um, I mean, and the lows would be when one of my old editors at, the New York Observer, uh, you know, just out of spite, gave me a really, really shitty review of one of my books. And I thought, I was like, I did not work my ass off for 15 years for this fucking asshole who went to Harvard, who's jealous to tear me up in New York Magazine. I, I mean, that was... I would say that was one of the lows. And that made me realize, I mean, unfortunately, one of the things that 
I don't work very much with men, but one of the things that I've learned from them is you really, they don't have your back. For a woman, they don't have your back. They're never gonna have your back. They will give lip service to having your back, but they really don't have your back. I couldn't agree. I really actually really agree. And I'm not the person to say that, but I do really agree. But the thing that I'm hearing from you, and it sounds obvious, but because we're in the Instagram filter shortcut world, isn't the number one reason that you are successful because you work your goddamn ass off from the day one till now? Yes. Um, but I think you have to really, really, really love doing it. And, you know, that's to me, is like one of the big differences between being a writer and being an actor. When you're an actor, you have to, somebody has to hire you to do the job. Mm. You can't, you know, you can't just walk down the street and say, hey, or be in your apartment like, oh, I'm going to act. It doesn't make any sense. Right. But with a writer, you know, all you need is a piece of paper and a pencil, honestly. And I write a lot of stuff that I don't get paid for. I just do it because. It's who you are. You know, I did it without making any money for a long time. And when I look at my financial situation, I'm always like, have I made enough money to be able to afford to write for the next five years mm, you know, okay. or for the next two years? That's beautiful. Um, that's really nice. So, you know, so that's how I look at it. And I often think, you know, you just have to pray that the culture is going to somehow catch up with you. But then it also, you know, sometimes you're riding on the wave and it, it aligns and it works and you're successful. But that wave changes direction and then you're not successful. So that's really, that's the hard part. Yes, but that's the learning. That's the best part because that's when you realize how to navigate something. And when it happens again, you don't get all worked up into it. I guarantee that guy who wrote you that shitty review, if that happened today, you would handle it in a completely different way, emotionally and maybe literally. Well, today there's, you know, today you can put that out on the internet and you would have other women coming to your defense mm -hmm. and saying like, this guy's really out of line and this is a really sexist review. But back then that didn't happen. Well, I so appreciate your wisdom, your insight, your telling us your story and sharing and this conversation. I appreciate it so much. And I wish you so much luck on your show and I can't wait to hear about it. Well, you're going to come to it. I would love to come to it. I just wasn't going to invite myself. <laughs> I'm going to invite you. Okay, great. Oh, great. It sounds wonderful. Okay, bye. Bye. So that was Candace Bushnell. Her show is, is there still sex in the city? She was interesting and different. That was more of a conversation. That was just really us getting inside of who she is and she was really just part of such an iconic time in New York and the most iconic show for single women in history. And uh, I really appreciated that conversation. And I liked that there was pushback, meaning there were things that I thought that were, that were incorrect and it just was a good, good flow. So I appreciate you and that conversation and I hope you will rate, review, and subscribe. Thank you so much. It's going really well and I'm so happy. Appreciate you. Bye.
Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is Sheep Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.